It is great to be here. Five years ago, we moved away, and I really love this church. And coming back and being able to worship here with you, some faces I know, some I don't know yet, it's a joy to be here. Even flying into Edinburgh and looking over the city with my son, it was just, I was saying, this is the city we lived in. We love this place. And now to be back here again, it feels like things have changed and our things are the same, but it is a joy to be here. Um, so yeah, so I'm a vicar now, and a curate, training, continue to train to be vicar, but I don't think you ever learn really that craft. And my wife Pippa is training as well. So it's really the reason we've done that is so that when we go to dinner parties, everyone becomes awkward. So they can come and say, you know, what do you do? I'm a vicar. Oh, right. And they turn to her, and what do you do? I'm also a vicar. Oh, they don't, they don't have anywhere to go. It's really good. It's really good. That's what we do. Um, let's say, let me say a word of prayer, and we'll get into these, uh, these scriptures today. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you are alive and real today. We thank you that you are God who continually transforms. We ask today that as we encounter the scripture, as we look at it, as we encounter our minds and our hearts, that you would give us a clear vision of you in our lives and you in our communities. We ask for your life. In your name, amen. So you've kind of been going through this series talking about the vision of P's and G's and, and, and how it's connected with the, the Philippians. And today we're going to keep doing that, and we're going to, I'm going to be talking about deepening influence. And the way I'm going to be doing that is kind of taking you on a bit of a field trip, okay? So we're going to go to three different places. We're going to start with an abbey, and I'm going to paint a picture about an abbey, and then we're going to go into a prison, and then we're going to go into a museum. Yeah, an abbey, a prison, and museum. And the goal of these spaces is for us to think about what our context is that the gospel is placed in now today, to think about what the Bible offers us to speak into that context, and thirdly, to think about the vision and the hope that P's and G's is in that context with that Bible backing them up. Does that sound good? So let's go to the first place, the Abbey. Now, when we lived here, we loved doing our days out. There's so much more to see here in Scotland than there is in England. English, they don't, they don't know how to do castles. We don't even know. We don't even do days out. We just go to Pizza Express. We don't know what to do. <laughs> but when we were here, it was always days out. We loved it, right? And we decided to go to the borders. And so we went to an abbey that was um, in the borders, and we went to Melrose Abbey. Who's, who's been to Melrose Abbey? Oh, lots of you, okay. So we did the thing where you kind of go, and it happened to be a sunny day, and we were walking around all of these ruins, and they have these beautiful plaques that kind of tell you about what life in that abbey used to be like. And they're describing this beautiful community about these Cistercian monks that would come and be involved in these rhythms of prayer, day and night, praying, that they were uh, tending and growing vegetables and fruit in order to feed the local community, that they were the source of education, bringing people out of poverty and educating them, teaching them to see the world in a different way, that they brewed beer. I mean, what an amazing community. <laughs> what an amazing community. This is, why do you not have a brewery here? Anyway, um, all of these wonderful things that they did. But then you kind of lift your eyes off of that, and you, after imagining that and getting inspired, 
And you think, where did it go? Why am I standing in ruins? What happened that, when, what happened that that rich community left? And it was left uh, to ruin, to, to fall apart. Even though it was still beautiful, it's just a former, it's a, just a glimpse of its former beauty. Some of the awe is taken out of it. And honestly, I think this is the way the world outside of here views the church. It's something that used to be really important, but it's just kind of ruins now. Something that used to be a part of our everyday life that maybe our grands used to be into and our mom and dad now is just not really relevant anymore. It's a thing of the past. And we get this narrative all the time. And I think what happens is oftentimes within churches, not just P's and G's, I'm saying within a larger church, we eat so much of this kind of narrative that our church is just falling apart, numbers are dry, going down, and then we just believe it. I'll tell you what, I read a t- saw a tweet recently, and someone said that the number of pubs closing is astronomical, but you never hear the newspaper saying, nobody's drinking in Britain anymore, pubs are closing, it's all failing. But there is this narrative that churches are failing, it's all closing, it's all bad. They're wrong. The church is relevant today. What we need to do is also think about our context and why they would be saying that. There's a really interesting book by Alistair um, McIntyre, and it's called ooh, After Virtue. Has anyone read After Virtue? Ooh, yeah, just one keen. Thank you. We'll talk later. Um, he paints this really interesting picture, and he's, what he, he's an ethicist, and he's doing virtue ethics, and he's looking for, this book's a while ago, and it's important because it's almost this prophetic voice into our culture now. And what he's doing is addressing the Enlightenment, this uh, movement happened a long time ago where many of the philosophers and thinkers of the day just decided to throw off the shackles of Christianity, to throw off the shackles of the learned, and believe that within ourselves we could create this utopia, this life could come out of us ourselves. And what he's saying is, okay, look, this is what's really happened. And he does it by giving us this analogy. Okay, so go with me. This is how he describes what really is happening with the Enlightenment. He says, imagine back in the day that there's these scientists, and these scientists did something really wrong. We don't know what it is, but it was really bad. And everybody in the world got together and said, that's it. We're getting rid of science. And so they killed all the scientists. They found all the websites and books and destroyed everything. They took it all out. So there was not even a slight remnant of scientists or science anymore. And they said, we're done with you. Goodbye. And then generations tick along. And the idea is that then someone says, hold on. Maybe we made a mistake by getting rid of all of science. Maybe just some scientists are bad and maybe we need science in our everyday life. Maybe we need that to function and think. And so they go about reconstructing science. But all they have is a little snippet from a paper that they find in someone's attic. Maybe they find like just one little tiny biology pamphlet, you know, that they can just kind of take and look at. And they have all these segments that they try and piece together. That nothing's connected, nothing, there's no bigger picture. They're fragments of science. And they put it together and they say, this is science. This fragmentation is what we know of science. And what he's saying is that this is what has happened with our virtues, with our morals. 
is that we have cast off and we've walked away from these structures that teach us and help us learn about our morality. And then we've tried to reconstruct it by ourselves in little fragments, and we've called it morality. But in truth, it's nothing like it. In truth, we are cast away at sea. He would go so far as to say we are actually in a moral dark ages. But because of the confidence in which we talk about our plastered together lives, we're not able to properly access it. Let let me read this quote. I think we're going to have it on the screen as well. This is by a guy named Stanley Harbaugh. And he's, he's, ref, he's thinking about what um, was written in After Virtue, about these, this fragmentation. He says, the fragmentation of our world is not only out there, but it is in our own souls. Amid fragments, it is extremely hard to maintain our moral identity. We feel pulled in different directions by our various roles and convictions, unsure whether there is or can be any coherence in our lives. We become divided selves, more easily tempted to violence. Since being unsure of ourselves, we're easily threatened by any change that might rob us of what little sense of self we have achieved. Okay, that's, that's quite weighty, right? It might be hard maybe just to kind of embrace all of that, but we feel the effects of this. I read an, an article recently, and I was, so I was a youth pastor for 16, 17 years. And I saw with the advent of kind of this digital revolution, young people changing at such a rate that it was hard to keep up with them. Right now, what's happening, and I know I'm going to sound like an old person talking about young people and digital stuff, but I'm just going to go with it, is that young people are taking these photos of themselves, these selfies, we all know about that, but now there's all these filters allowed, and they're basically like airbrushing their own faces and then posting it online, and then feeling depressed because they don't look like the fake image that they created. Do you see how, where is the, the, the place that roots us when we are looking for the other, the invisible like, the person that we don't even know to give us our affirmation? We're unrooted, aren't we? Or you see that because we don't have our roots, we gather together in clusters around hobbies now. You know, you have people that are like, I am a fan of superhero movies, you know? And they gather around with other people. You see them in churches sometimes, and they're talking about Black Panther, blah, blah, blah. And then you come up, and that's like who they are. This is us. I'm this this person. And you come up, and if you say, I'm sorry, Black Panther wasn't that good, which it was, I mean, obviously. But, (laughs) But he says, it's not that good. You are not only attacking that movie, you are attacking them, because they, that's, the, that's where they found their root in that little group of friends. It's a fragmentation. Tell me you don't see it every day in comment sections on political issues that are rooting themselves in a political belief. We're feeling the stretches of this fragmented society. We want to believe that we're getting better, that we're more peaceable, that we're more tolerant, that we're more understanding. But you know it as well as I do. We feel the stretch and the strain of us being more fractured than ever. That we're not coming together. And in fact, we're being pushed apart. This is the effects of the Enlightenment. So what do we speak into? If this is our abbey, our abbey that is just in ruins. The field trip continues. We go to a second space. And now rather than an abbey, we're in a little simple room with a table and we see Paul writing, and we're in prison. 
Paul, who has been a carrier of the gospel, who has a, been a righteous man, who has been someone that was part of the early church, is in prison. His rights taken away. And he sits there, a guard at the door. And yet, as you open your Bibles now, and we're there in Philippians 4, he is writing the most beautiful words about a peace that cannot be taken away from him. Let's see what he teaches us, what we can grasp, that, that we can learn from Paul, what we can learn from our structures that we can then give away to this culture. If you have your Bibles open, starting in verse 4, we'll go to verse 5, actually. He says, the Lord is near. He's aware that this world is more than just the jail cell. He's aware that the world is about more than just his current situation. That the Lord is near to him then, but also there is an eternity that is waiting for him as well. There's a perspective that can't be robbed from him because he sees that the Lord is near. And in that perspective, he says, do not be anxious about anything but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. I think it's interesting that Paul is talking about presenting. And you know, I tell you what, a person in prison has a lot to pray for, right? I pray for freedom, I pray for me to get out, I pray for more food, I pray for more letters, whatever he's going to be praying for. But it says that he's presenting all these things to the Lord, but he's not actually looking for resolution. A couple years ago, I was finding that I was in a really stale place and I found praying really difficult. And I found that it was because I was doing something very different than what Paul was doing. I was, all my prayers were based around an answer. So it'd be like, God, give me this job. Lord, help me to resolve this. Let the youth group do this. You know, let Dave lead me this way. These are the prayers I'd be praying. And you know, they were never resolved. I, wouldn't, I would never pray for Dave. I'm just kidding. No. Um, and so you have, these, you have these things that are happening. And what it is, is almost like rather than God who is the creator of the universe, he was just this little God in my pocket that when I needed something, I'd pull out and say, Genie, Jesus, give me answers now. Give me an answer. I need something. And he'd be so tiny. And then when I would create him in my own image and when he wouldn't take care of me, I would say, do you even exist? because you didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted. And I'll tell you what got rid of this for me was a situation that didn't go so hot when I was here. I went for ordination and it was all kind of green lights, everything seemed to be going well. And after one meeting, they said, no. They put a stop to it. This thing I felt God called me to. And I know people in here will have been through a lot more difficult situations and pain but for me, this particular thing hit me right to my root. And it caused me to say, God, I was following you, God. What do we do now? Because I was following you and it didn't work out. And have you ever been in such a situation where you felt your anxiety, you felt the things in your life that have flipped you upside down and you don't know where to find your stability, that you're tossed like by a wind and you're at sea, kind of lost? Who am I? Am I the only one? Others? Yeah? Okay. Quietly nodding. Don't call on me, but yes. What I found is that I became a really grumpy person because I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where God was. And my wife, who's really the wisest among us, she said, do not be grumpy with me. 
because it's not about me. It's about this thing that happened two weeks ago. You need to go pray. And I was like, too right. So I, after a number of days, I'd go just into my bedroom when I started feeling grumpy and just sit there. And I didn't have a prayer life left over. I couldn't pull out little genie Jesus and say, give me an answer, because there was no answers for me then. All I could do was sit with my anxiety, sit with the things that were weighing me down, sitting there, hoping for some sort of answer. But words did not come. But I found that I almost entered a new space of prayer where it was no longer about words. The quietness itself was important. And every once in a while, as I sat on my bed in silence, it was as if Jesus was there with me. He wasn't giving me an answer. It was him himself, the very presence of Jesus. And it transformed my perspective. And I realized this is what it's all about. These, these things that I desire can be taken away, but this is what can't be taken away. Jesus himself. You see, this is what guards your hearts and minds. This is what Paul is talking about. When we're encountering actual Jesus, we're encountering Jesus among us, it changes everything. Our perspectives change. We become who we're meant to be in light of Jesus. We keep looking at this. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul is going through this list of virtues that would have been known in the Greek world then. He's going through what people would have been talking about in the public, public square. He would have been going through the thoughts of the day. And Paul is saying it is okay to engage with this world. It's okay to think about what they're thinking about. It's okay to be in the public sphere. But then he also says something different. He says, think about such things. However, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice. And he's showing us that there is a way for us to engage in the world and come back into discipleship. And that we need each other, right? We need to see what it looks like to follow Christ. And there's peace in that when we as a community look after one another and we follow one another. That we're not meant to just go out into the world and stay out there and kind of float by ourselves, but we have to go out to come back in. We go out and we come back in. So this is the picture he's painting. This guy, Stanley Harvoss, again, he calls it this kingdom of peace, a peaceable kingdom that Paul is talking about. That our perspective is not just now, that we present our very lives to God, that we engage with the world and we come back. And what is the gift? That the God of peace will be with you. Jesus Christ is the God of peace come among us. He, his attribute is that of peace. Our confidence doesn't come generated from ourselves, our confidence, our confidence comes from Jesus, who is peace, who is the great reconciler, who is the one that can forgive sins, who is the one that can join foreigner and the insider and the outsider, who does the work that none of us can. This is what guards us. This is our life of peace in Jesus. This is awesome. If you're not excited about what I'm talking about now, you should be, because this is real stuff that we can offer this world. 
that is floating around. We can offer them a gospel of peace that is in Jesus. We have a unique voice, and it is good. Okay. Um, Stanley Harwa says this, The peace Christians embody in which they offer the world is based on a kingdom that has become present in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so we see these two places. We see this abbey. Maybe we're in ruins, but we have a perspective on the world that's a bit fractured. We go to this prison cell and we see this peaceable kingdom, this kingdom that is not of ourselves, but it is the kingdom of Jesus that offers peace into a world, even into troubles. But now we go into our last and our third space. We go into the museum, yeah? Now, the museum that I went to was in Vienna. Who here has ever been to Vienna? Very nice. Lots of cakes. I recommend it. Um, and I went around, and I happened to be myself, and I had an afternoon free. So I got one of those kind of top ten things to do, you know, when you're in a city. You'll see tourists all over here have those. And I went over, and, and, and I was there, and there was this huge place that used to be a palace. And I walked in and realized it was actually now a museum. It was an art gallery. And a lot of it was Gustav Klimt. And one of the things that they had was this picture called The Kiss. I think we have a picture of it. They can come up in a second. Yeah? You guys recognize this? I don't, I don't like this picture. I'll tell you why I don't like this picture. It's because when I was like in my kind of early 20s, every girl that I knew that was my friend had this poster on their wall. And I just associated it with kind of like this cheesy art. And so I thought, well, it's a famous picture. I'll see it. But this is just some sort of cheesy, you know, they're kissing each other. This is how gross. Okay. Um, and so I walked around, and I started to see all this Gustav Klimt stuff, and it was wonderful. And then I come to the end of the last gallery, and it was this large room. And as I come into it, I see at the far end that the wall had been painted totally black, and hanging just in the middle of it is the kiss with lights on it shining down. And it was like I had never seen it before. I was drawn to it, but I thought, no. I must take my time. And I was looking at all the other Gustav Klimt's walking around, but kept looking at it. King saying, why is this picture that I don't like calling to me? And then I got close to it, and I saw that it was nothing that I'd ever seen before, that I had never actually encountered this picture. I had encountered a false form of this picture, that this real, the real guts of this picture can't be put up together on a poster. This picture does not tell you about that. In real life, there are shades of gold shimmering, there's texture. There, he's telling a whole story of their lives in this garment that is coming all around. It is half mosaic, half painting. And it changes as you look at it and you consume it. It is different. It is beautiful. And I walked away thinking completely different about that picture, thinking that is one of my favorite pictures. I've been transformed by seeing it in real life. There are a lot of people now that have seen a form of church and have thrown it off, thinking it's not exactly what I want. It's not really that important. They've seen it in poster form. But P's and G's, what you get to do is to show them the real thing. That's what your vision is. That's what this vision is of impacting, of really going for deepening influence, is getting to show Scotland, the world around you, the real thing. Just picture this vision really worked out. That one of the vision is to plant churches. Who are the people that you get to plant to? Who are the people that don't know the gospel yet? The P's and G's is going to go out to. 
What communities do you get to go out to and bless with the real gospel, with going out with this kingdom of peace? Who in here is going to play their role in this planting vision? Who's sparking with that and thinking, I know I could go and we could do this? How exciting to model these kingdoms of peace in your plants. It's going to be wonderful what you have. Talking about training people, you know, I think people would say, I've not asked you if you would say this, but you did School of Theology, and that was one of the things that sparked you going for ordination, wasn't it? Absolutely, coming into those things that you have. You're already modeling here this kingdom of peace, yeah? It's already it's enacted. What's the next step? You know, you've got plans, and it's so exciting to think about all the different types of people that are yet to feel that calling and training. Yeah, as you think about the vastness of this city and the cities around, and you get to model a training that is inclusive, that cares for lots of people, where everybody gets to play. This is what you model here, and this is what you're going to be taking out. How do you play a part in modeling it? Just like Dai does, you had a vision. This stuff that you're doing is impacting people. What role do you get to play as well? It's exciting, yeah? And the last thing is, Speaking the voice to power. The great thing is that we don't have to do this individually. You get to do it as a collective. As I look around, I see a lot of familiar faces that I know that are quality people, generally. (laughs) That you're made up of quality people. And my guess is the faces I don't know are also quality people. You're not here as an individual just worshiping. You're here together as one body. As we take communion, we say, because we are one body, we share in one bread. Our faith is not an individual faith, it's a corporate faith. And as we, as you guys continue to access these kingdoms of peace, you will be speaking to powers because they will say, what is going on with this church that is planning transformative places of transformation all around? That's exciting. Guys, I just want to tell you, get confident. I'm, I'm sure you, maybe you are. And maybe I'm speaking to the larger church, with not just here, not just P's and G's. But I want people to be confident in church again, because it is beautiful. What we have to offer is stunning and beautiful, and it's relevant now.